Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 27, verse 9. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. King Solomon was not a psychologist, but he knew something that psychologists have since confirmed. Our sense of smell has a strong and powerful direct link to the memory and emotion centers of our brains. Odors and fragrances can trigger emotional reactions, and the fragrance of a good perfume can actually make us feel happy. This morning's proverb reminds us that like perfume, but far more powerfully, friendship can also give delight. But the friendship spoken of here is not the friendship to which we have become accustomed. It is not casual or lighthearted. It's not a we're friends on Facebook type of friendship. What is described here is true friendship, a deep friendship in which there is concern for the condition and prosperity of each other's soul. Such concern is demonstrated in the giving of hearty counsel. Hearty counsel, as Matthew Henry describes, is counsel of the soul, counsel that comes to the heart, counsel about soul concerns. It could be advice or encouragement or even admonishment. Whatever of these it may be, it is hearty counsel when it is grounded upon the truth of God's word, clothed in humility, spoken in sincere love, and solidified by an intimate knowledge of the friend to whom it is spoken. Counsel like this gives delight because we desperately need it. Day after day, the devil, the world, and sin rail against our souls. Time after time, we encounter the bitter consequences of a fallen world. We fail, we get discouraged, we get off track, we get scared. This is true of all of us. We must recognize it and see that we cannot make it on our own. Friendship is a gift from God. We need the sweetness of friendship and the nurturing power of hearty counsel that a friend can give. But here is where we may have fallen short. Have we let our pride prevent us from seeking out true friendships or from humbly receiving the wise counsel of a friend? Have we been so self-centered that we have not been a true friend to others or failed to be prepared to give hearty counsel when it is needed? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then we must repent. Repent and seek to develop deeper friendships with others. Repent and get into God's word. Study it so that we, as Paul told Timothy, can be ready in season and out of season, ready to both give and to receive hearty counsel. At the core of all this is love, love for God and love for others that leaves no room for self-protection or self-promotion, a love for God that longs to see his church made strong and to see him glorified in the lives of others, a love for others that gives sacrificially of self and time and goods. May we, the body of Christ, have such love for God and for one another. Then we will be true friends to each other, and the sweet aroma of Christ will give delight to us all. This proverb has reminded us of our need to confess our sins. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. Good morning, everyone. 
I bring greetings to you from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Cornerstone Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Brighton. It's a privilege to be here and worship with you this morning. As I've been working through this message this week, I, I had two different texts in mind, and I finally settled on one after I sent this one your way. So I'm going to ask you to actually turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. The outline will probably be pretty close to what's in your bulletin, so feel free to look on to that as well. Mark 10, and we're going to begin at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill us afresh with your spirit. And bless our time in your word this morning, that we may learn even more about what it means to follow you as our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My four children are grown now. The youngest one is just finishing up college. And so it was a very different experience for them with seatbelts growing up because by the time they were in cars as passengers, it was the law of the land to put a seatbelt on. I remember growing up without seatbelts at all. They weren't even in the cars. And then they were eventually introduced and then they became the law. And I found that seatbelts could be a hassle. It could be frustrating and annoying. Nowadays, some cars won't even let you turn them on unless you've got them snug and in place. 
Some people just don't want to be bothered even when the law requires them to buckle up. I read an article in the Associated Press that a New Zealander named Ivan Segedin took this to an extreme. The police ticketed him 32 times over five years for failing to use his seatbelt. Even though this was costing him big money, Segedin refused to buckle up. And finally, instead of obeying the law, the man decided to rely on deception. And so he crafted a fake seatbelt that would hang over his shoulder and make it appear that he was wearing a seatbelt when he was not. And his trick worked for a while. But then he had a head-on collision. He was thrown forward onto the steering wheel and killed. When truly tested, what is fake, that which is fake, will fail you. For those looking at the outward appearance of Segedin driving the car, everything seemed to be running well and in fine condition. But on the inside, something was very wrong. And so it is with you and me. We can go through the outward motions of the Christian life and seem okay to others. But often on the inside, something very different is taking place. The internal cracks and the attitudes of our hearts begin to affect our behavior. And then one day we fall into serious moral failures or disasters. Relationships crash and burn. Personal addictions are eventually exposed. A lapse in integrity is discovered in the workplace. And people end up asking, how could that happen to such an upstanding person as Bob or Mary? Years ago, I heard that a pastor in our area was preaching in the title outside the church. They had a little sign out there where they gave the name of the message, and it said, The Most Common Sin. And I was interested at that point. I wondered what, what it was going to be. Gossip? Uh, was it going to be uh, not telling the truth? I wasn't sure. I wasn't able to find out. I wasn't able to attend. But that question has always been in the back of my mind since those days. Our text tells us that a man came to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 22 tells us that he had great wealth. So outwardly he was successful. In today's world he would maybe own his own business or several businesses. He would own a large, beautiful home in the best neighborhood, perhaps an additional home up north or down in Florida. He would own several cars, very expensive cars, and a host of other costly toys and furnishings. He'd probably be a member of several exclusive country clubs. He'd wear designer suits costing several thousand dollars. From all outward appearances, he would be the picture of success. And spiritually, this person seems to have it all together, too. How do we know that? Well, when he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus answers him, you, you know the commandments. And he responds by saying, after Jesus mentions them, Teacher, I've kept all these since I was a boy. Could you say that? I certainly couldn't. I grew up with four brothers. I definitely could not say that. Evidently, he gave everyone the impression that he was outwardly following God's commandments. He probably worshipped regularly, 
He tithed his money. He honored his parents. He didn't work on the Sabbath. He was faithful if he was married to his marriage vows. He didn't try to cheat anyone in his business dealings. When he says, all these commandments I have kept since I was a boy, it doesn't mean that he'd never sinned. I don't think so. But his track record was clean and admirable. This man had led an exemplary life up to this point. Who knows, maybe he kept the commandments better than any of us here this morning. But something was missing. Something inside this man was not right, even though outwardly he seemed to have it all together. Despite his confidence, there's an uneasiness in this man. In Matthew's account, the man adds, what am I still lacking? He's restless. He's still missing something. Perhaps it drove him to ask the question in the first place. And Jesus knows all about this man's condition. He knows why he is uneasy, restless, and unhappy. And Jesus responds in verse 21 with what I think is one of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. What does that mean? I think it means that Jesus looked right through the outward financial and spiritual success of this man, and he saw right through to the man's unhappiness and lack of peace. And Jesus makes his diagnosis. This man is suffering from a divided heart. You see, part of this man wants a little bit of God, a little bit of eternity, but not so much that it would cause him to make a radical change. Every now and again, he gets to thinking about what will happen after death or why he's feeling empty inside, and he recognizes his need to think about spiritual things. But the other part of his heart wants to be a man of the world, free to chart his own course and satisfy his own desires, do the things that everyone else is doing. But you see, those who waver back and forth between God and the world, who want to be religious and also be a man or woman of the world, are destined to be unhappy. Because that little bit of God is just enough to bother their conscience so that they can no longer sin with the whole heart. Or when they do, they're hounded by the nagging question, what does this look like in God's eyes? On the other hand, they can't, cannot pray with a whole heart either. They can never know the joy and peace of being one with God in close fellowship. A little bit of God is a dangerous thing because something begins to bore down inside of people and make them restless. It was true for this man, and it's certainly true for you and me. Think about it. Have you ever envied those non-Christians who don't seem to have any conscience at all? They may gossip about others or cheat on their tax returns without any pangs of guilt. They may tell a lie or engage in infidelity or immoral business practices and yet recover without too many bruises to their conscience. But those of us with divided hearts, we have our inhibitions, we have our scruples with our conscience in such things. We can no longer be red-blooded, tough sinners like the rest of the world. But we also are not saints who have at least exchanged sin for the higher joys of communion with God, peace with God. So we have neither in the proper sense, and this is our trouble. We end up restless and unhappy. 
Having a divided heart makes you a half-hearted Christian. So what do I mean by half-hearted? I mean you're always running with half-steam. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. And it goes on to say, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Whatever he does prospers. If we're honest this morning, most of us would admit that we're far from experiencing the blessings that the psalmist mentions here. The blessings that come from a heart set on one thing, pleasing God. We may look good on the outside. We may look spiritual. What I like to think of as Christian walk as image management. But that's very different from sanctification. Inside, we're anxious and we're troubled. So let me ask you this morning, what areas is your heart divided in? What areas do you still continue to sin in regularly, even though it doesn't bring the same pleasure that it used to bring? What's the one area of your life that you're still not willing to give up to the Lord? In a sense, that's your Lord. So the most common sin is that of the divided heart, the partially surrendered heart. Let's look at God's cure for the divided heart. It says, Jesus looked at the man and loved him, and with the precision of a surgeon's trained scalpel, because of his eye that's been trained, he saw through to the man's problem, the cause of his divided heart. And Jesus wrote a pretty stiff prescription. Look at verse 21. He said, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now the problem was not that this man had riches. Let me make that clear. The Bible never says that you must give up your personal wealth in order to follow Jesus Christ. No, the problem was that his riches had him. He could not fully surrender his heart to Jesus because his possessions held first place. And Jesus knew the only, that only the single-hearted are free from all the things that tempt and torment the half-hearted. So he says, go sell everything that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus knew that only such a a radical decision would free the man from his divided heart. Does it make sense? It's like the doctor who tells his patient, only a radical operation will save you. If I don't cut deep into the flesh now, I will only be doing a superficial and temporary patch job. And in a few weeks, the disease will break out again. In the same way, Jesus says to you and me, If you've lost heart, if you're running the Christian race with only half steam, that means that your heart has gotten distracted and you need to become single-hearted again. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Author John Eldridge writes, God intends that we treat our hearts as the treasures of the kingdom, ransomed at tremendous cost, as if they really do matter, and matter deeply. Let me challenge you this morning. How would you live differently 
if you believed your heart was the treasure of the kingdom. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. You see, the, the heart, your heart, is the place where the abundant life Jesus promised flows into you. And you cannot expect your, uh, to ignore your heart and then hear from God. Eldridge writes, How kind of God to give us this warning. Like someone entrusting to a friend something precious to him and saying, Be careful with this. It means a lot to me. Above all else, above all else, guard your heart. If we're honest, we have to say often we don't even do it once in a while. It, and you know, what Jesus is saying is the equivalent, it's the equivalent of, of leaving your life savings on the, on the front seat of the car with the windows rolled down and the, car, the door unlocked. We're that careless sometimes with our hearts. So let me ask you this morning, what, what does the Lord see when he looks at you and loves you this morning? What still holds first place in your heart? What area do you need to surrender to him so that you can experience genuine, lasting peace? Is it a relationship that you haven't let him in on? The entertainment that you're choosing? Is it your independence, your desire to set your own schedule? Maybe it's, those, uh, it's, it's the approval. Whose approval you're living for? Have you made God the audience of your life? Perhaps you've left God out of your decision-making altogether. Or maybe money is your obstacle as it was for this young man. Now let me come at this from a little bit different angle. There's a positive side as well to giving up things that Christ demands. And it's this. When God calls us to surrender certain areas to Jesus, it's only because he wants to give us much, much more in return. Let me say that one more time. When God calls us to surrender certain areas of our lives over to Jesus, it's only because he wants to give us much, much more in return. In our text in verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. He's implying, what then will there be for us? The reason I know that is Matthew's account over in Matthew 19. Those are exactly the words. But Jesus answers here, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. I want you to notice something I discovered afresh in this text. Jesus says here that in exchange for putting him first, we will receive eternal life in the age to come. Well, most of us know that. That's our hope as we live through this life, that it isn't just this earthly existence that we have. But look just before that. He says, I tell you the truth, no one who has left all these things, all these people... For me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. In this present age. Notice that Jesus does not delay his offer to us until some point out in the distant future. After we've trudged our way through our days here on earth. No, he talks about a life available to us in this present age. 
In other words, he offers us life abundant, life to the full, and that life begins now. And your heart is the place where that life flows into you from him. After all, your heart is the place where he wants to live. Years ago, Irenaeus, one of the fathers of the second century church, wrote that the glory of God is man fully alive. That's an amazing quote. Jesus said that no one puts, who puts him first will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. I don't think he means that our finances or health or lifespan will automatically increase a hundredfold. He's not preaching a health and prosperity gospel here. No, I think he meant that in this present life, it's our hearts that will be reclaimed and become treasures of the kingdom. And the joy and the peace that come with your heart coming fully alive is the very thing that those with divided hearts cannot have. Do you know what I mean? Deep, lasting peace. Deep, lasting joy, regardless of your immediate circumstances. A meaning and a purpose to your life. A contentment that no money or success can bring. As Jesus looks at you and loves you this morning, what's the condition of your heart? There's a Christian folk story from South India. It tells of a young boy who loved to play marbles. And he would walk through his neighborhood with a pocket full of his best marbles, hoping to find rivals to play against. One marble in particular, his special blue marble, had won him many matches. And during one walk, he met a young girl who was eating a bag of chocolate candy. And though the boy's first love was definitely his marbles, he had a weakness for chocolate. And it took only a moment for him to respond by saying, I've got to somehow get my hands on those chocolates. And so he came up with a plan and he asked the girl, how about if I give you all of these marbles for those chocolates? And she said, that sounds fair to me. So he put his hand down in his pocket and he was searching for the distinguishing cracks in the special blue marble. And he pushed that down to the very bottom of his pocket. And then he reached in and he took everything but that last one out. And he handed the marbles to the girl in exchange for the chocolate, pleased that his plan was a success. And he turned to walk away. And as he began to eat the candy, he suddenly turned to the girl and asked, Hey, did you give me all the chocolates? And you know, the attitude of that boy in the story is not too different from ours. We want everything the kingdom has to offer. We want to have a secure sense of God's presence in our lives each day. We want our prayers to be answered. We want to feel close to Jesus. We want it all. But we are unwilling to give up everything for it. Many times there's a blue marble in our lives that we seem unwilling to offer to the control of Jesus. And until we can fully give ourselves to God's will, our participation in his kingdom will be limited at best. So let me encourage you this morning, if you've lost heart, or if you've only been living the Christian life half-heartedly, the good news is you don't have to continue that way. The great physician looks into your heart and he loves you and he writes a script and it's easy to read 
not so easy to live out. But he promises that as we surrender those areas of our lives over to him, he will take them and transform them and give them back to us in such a way that we will have the undivided hearts and glorify him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Indeed, that you know us and you search out our hearts even when we refuse to be honest before you. And so we would pray this morning, first, that you would give us honesty before you, that you would search our hearts and you would expose those areas of our lives where we are still living for ourselves, where we have still not yielded them to you. And give us the courage then to step out in faith and surrender them over to you. And as we do so, we know that you are faithful and you will indeed replace those divided hearts with those that are completely surrendered to you. And we may find ourselves walking a Christian life with a full commitment to you, with full disposal of your resources that you make so readily available to us. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed be faithful in exposing those areas to us and giving us the courage to do just that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Luke 14, verse 33, we read this. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Our God is a jealous God. What this means is that he is a demanding God. He won't settle for anything less than all of us. We may not follow him partly. We may not offer him only a portion. He made all. He gives all. It all belongs to him. We may not and we must not hold anything back in our pursuit of him and his life. Now this is a daunting and an overwhelming expectation. Who is sufficient for these things? Nobody is. But we do not need to live or die in fear and trepidation. God's desire is not to destroy us. His desire is to save us. He loves us. And he doesn't ask anything more of us than he gives us of himself. He reveals to us from himself, and he freely bestows upon us. When God asks us to give up our lives to him, he does it in the context of the gospel. We receive covenant promises that are a transaction. In exchange for our broken lives, God gives us whole lives. In exchange for our foolish pride and sinful arrogance, God gives us holy peace and lasting glory. Our faith and hope drive us to proclamation of unseen truth that all the sacrifice 
which God may ask of us, is worth it. It's absolutely and completely worth it. Jesus lived and died for us. In exchange for the faith which God gives to us, we receive everything. We read in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This table is where we celebrate and proclaim this truth. Jesus died for you, he died for me, and he gives to us everything. And he started by giving to us his life. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.